Hi, Claire. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. How are things going? You're out in Portland, Oregon, right? <laughs> I am in Portland, Oregon, and <laughs> it is um it's interesting out here. <laughs> it's um it's rainy now, but uh-huh. um you know, it's been it's been a crazy past couple of months. We've got a lot we've got a lot more uh white supremacy out here than I think yeah. a lot of people realize. <laughs> well, that's what I so. I mean, I I think, you know, there had been a, even before all this, there'd been a lot of press, I guess, about the whiteness of Portland. Um there was like a W Kamau Bell show, I think, about it <laughs> that I watched. Oh, really? Um yeah, but I get but you didn't expect all this, I'm sure. Well, I not when I first moved here, but like right. it makes sense because it's it's such a white place. Oregon like mm-hmm. was founded to be white. Like it has a very racist history and it's just I mean, I'm from Mississippi, so it, it's it's a different kind of racism because there mm-hmm. in Mississippi like you are around black people, like you you have to live with them and right. you don't get this weird racist white echo chamber like you do out here. Mm-hmm. Um it makes sense. It sucks. Like it's, but yeah, every year, I mean, this isn't new. They've been every year they've been doing this every summer. They come down, the proud boys or Patriot prayer come down and they yell. (laughs) We, I usually try to go down there with like a, with like a union contingent and, you know, counter protest, but they, they suck. But other than that, (laughs) (laughs) well, um, and, and you know the, the pandemic. Of course, yeah. No, usually I haven't been asking people how they're doing really for this podcast. I mean, not because yeah. I don't care, but because I don't want to like right. for posterity have it all be you know kind of tainted. You know, <laughs> I, I want I, right. I like these these interviews to to happen as though we are like in a not in the worst. Um, thing that could be happening <laughs> but i mean at least right. we're almost not in the absolute worst thing because trump won't be president soon hopefully god willing. that's true that's one <laughs> one stressor that has been eliminated yes um but, and uh... i think yeah <laughs> well i think the first question though will get me to the question i want to ask you right now from this but can you tell me about uh-huh. where you grew up and what you ate Yes, I can. So I already mentioned I'm from Mississippi originally from um, a very small town in northern Mississippi called Aberdeen. I think the closest town anyone would have heard of would be Tupelo, which is where Elvis was born. (laughs) Um, That's like the the nearest claim to fame. Um, And then when I was six years old, my parents got divorced and my mother moved to Los Angeles, which was a complete shift like culturally and food wise, you know, completely different. My mom actually fit in really well there um, because she's kind of always been into eating health, healthfully or healthfully or however you want to say it. Um, whereas I'm not like <laughs> for me, it, <laughs> it was not the best fit, but yeah, she'll like for, for breakfast, she would like toast a piece of Ezekiel bread and then pour flaxseed oil on it instead of butter and, and then put like, an egg on top of that. And she was like, it's just like butter. I'm like, it is nothing like butter. (laughs) It's not, it's not like butter. (laughs) Um, so that's her. And then, but I would go to Mississippi at least twice a year and, um, visit my dad and my grandmother. Um, 
and my grandmother and my stepmom also heavily influenced how I eat. My grandmother, it's weird because she she hated cooking, like absolutely hated it, but did it almost every day. So she like she was very good at shortcuts and she like she really embraced like you know, processed foods, canned foods, but like it always tasted really good. Like, but it was like, why does this taste good? Oh, you put like a stick of butter in these green beans. <laughs> like, um, so yeah, it was kind of the two extremes of my mom and my grandmother. And I'm kind of somewhere in the middle. Um, but yeah, moving to Los Angeles, that, that was a big, that was a big shift. Cause like before that, the only pizza I had had was like from pizza hut. And it was like the barbecue pizza. <laughs> so then <laughs> not that Los Angeles has a strong pizza identity, but just like the types of foods that I could suddenly right. try. And, and I right. love them. Like the, um, like a lote, like the corn on a stick that we would get in the park with like mayonnaise and chili powder. And like, I was like, I didn't even know we could put mayonnaise on corn. I was <laughs> <laughs> well, how does being, um, well, for what, how did you end up in, in Oregon? Um, okay. So I was in Los Angeles, um, and I was going to community college at PCC. And then I met my ex-husband at Coachella (laughs) through like mutual (laughs) friends, but we met at Coachella. Um, and then he was living in Florida. So I moved to Florida because I wasn't like, you know, I was just in school and I wasn't so far into a program where I couldn't do that. So then I lived in Florida for seven years. Um, and then we just wanted to not live in Florida anymore. And one of my friends from school, actually almost all of my friends from school ended up working at Intel, even though we all went to University of Florida because um, I was a chemistry major. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's, so then my, my friend Matt was just like, hey, you should move out here. And we were just like, okay. Um, and, and my dad had actually he didn't always live in Mississippi. He had lived out here for a while when I was a teen. So I grew up like coming up here for the summers and I knew I really liked the weather because I don't mm-hmm. like being in sun and like Florida was killing me. Like I was just <laughs> too hot all the time. I had to have like six, six weird looking moles removed. Like I just, the, the sun is not my friend. So right. I'm better suited to this climate. Yeah. But yeah, we moved up here and then like a year later we got divorced. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Well, how did you yeah, end up working in food? What, what you studied chemistry? Yeah. Yeah. So I was, how did it happen? I mean, I was always really enthusiastic about food. Like I, I cooked for my roommate in college and, and like cook, ended up cooking for her boyfriends a lot because she couldn't really cook. So I would like <laughs> cook for all, but anyway. Um, and I was always really enthusiastic about food and I was working as a lab tech at a big, like in space and defense, if you can believe it. And I was kind of like very uncomfortable about the defense part, but it was the only job around at the time. And it was just running like an NMR spectra photometer, which was super fucking boring. But so in the meantime, ExoJane came into being and I was reading it and the only like food coverage I really saw was like either relating to people struggling with eating disorders, which, you know, is important writing that should be done and, or like related to dieting. And I was just kind of like this, like, that's fine. I was like, but I just, I felt like there was a void of like, just talking about food as a source of fun, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, 
And so that's just what I pitched to Emily McComb. So I was like, hey, I just noticed that like there's this area of content that we we could oh, I hate that I just said content, but like the, you know, there's this area of coverage that we could we could be talking about food is like a fun thing. And my first article was about peanut butter and pickle sandwiches. Nice. And I think I tested out like a bunch of different pickles. And so that was the first one. And then I just uh, I just kept pitching them um, and I kept my job for a while. And then before I moved, I quit that. And I kind of, you know, just gradually transitioned into taking getting more and more assignments, being able mm-hmm. to do it full time. And then I was freelancing for Lifehacker and then they offered me the full time position. Nice. Well, yeah, you so. occupy like a very interesting you know, space in in food media. I feel like you are one of the few people who really like does recipes mostly. Like you focus really on on recipes. And you know how how did you kind of come to your approach that is this like really funny and irreverent in in the world of food media, which is like very reverent, <laughs> um, like approach yeah. to like marrying the highbrow and low brow. Like you know, I I've talked to you before because I love that you put MSG in a martini. Like how did you arri- <laughs> right. how did you arrive at this approach? And you know, I know that you, how do you kind of challenge sort of classist ideas about what food is and what it can be and what it should be in your work? Well, I think I mean it comes from two different places. One, it comes from like my family in, until my parents' generation. My family was pretty poor. Like my grandfather, um, both his parents were dead by the time he was fifteen, and he had to quit school because his older sister was in the tuberculosis sanatorium and his younger sisters were still in school and he didn't want them to have to quit school. So he like dropped out, worked full time to get them through school. And like, I, I don't know, like I, I have, <laughs> so I kind of grew up particularly at my grandparents' house with those kind with, with those kind of attitudes about food, like, influencing how I enjoyed food and also like, you know, processed food, canned foods, like a lot of them taste good. (laughs) Like they just, they just do. There's a reason they taste good. There's a reason they were invented. They were invented to, you know, prevent food spoilage, to make food more accessible to people. And I, I just feel like a snobbery against it. It helps no one. Um, particularly cause like, I think people are lying if they say that like they don't enjoy American cheese on a cheeseburger. Like it's just like, it's scientifically engineered to melt perfectly. Like it doesn't, if if you have like a really good burger, you don't want a cheese that overpowers the meat. Like, so there's just like, if you really think about like correct application, there are correct applications for some of these food. I'm not saying that like everyone should, you know, drink only Coca-Cola and eat Doritos all the time and like just eat hot dogs. But like you can appreciate these things in a balanced way and you don't have to be a classist dick about it. So like, it's kind of like me being defensive of my family and like Mm -hmm. (laughs) my background, but also like not everyone can afford, like I hated the the phrase like clean eating. Like it's, it's disgusting. Like it's, yeah. it's so classic because you're, you're implying that other food is dirty and that if you don't have the money to eat organic locally sourced vegetables that you're like somehow morally deficient. And I think like there, there's no place for that in my, in my world, like in my view of food. Um, 
that was very rambling. I hope that no, that <laughs> was that wonderful. No, yeah. I mean it's funny because um, yeah, I mean you're talking to someone who's never eaten a piece of American cheese. Um, not because like it wasn't wow. around, but because I've just I always uh-huh. I don't know. I well, I've always had a, a very um, bad relationship with dairy because I'm like basically just lactose intolerant. Oh, right. Yeah. And so I right. like American cheese always was it's a cheese has always been something where I'm like very, very, very picky about it because I know it's going to make myself sick. And when I was little, I just didn't, I don't know. I just didn't like it, but I understand that you, right. uh, that like it has a purpose and it has this place and it, oh, it really is very difficult to kind of marry the perspective of, you know, we should, make locally sourced organic food accessible to people but at the same time it doesn't have a moral significance beyond like its ecological or like economic impact it doesn't say anything about the person who really likes american cheese and you know i'm if we even fix the whole food system to like be agroecologically locally sourced and everything there would still be american cheese you know and i think that people come from a very like either or perspective on food and how, you know, in your work, how do you speak to kind of a broad audience? I mean, I think I know this now because now I know that you studied chemistry. And so now it makes a little more sense. But like, how do you, <laughs> yeah, how do you, you make sure that you're, you know, speaking to people in a way that like, I don't know, just um, acknowledges all the complicated realities around food? And, you know, what is the response like from the, the Lifehacker audience to to what you do? I mean, I think I've, I've cultivated like a fairly, um, like a fairly friendly comment section, which is, I mean, is, it's very different from the comment section I had at ExoJane, which I mean, I actually, I like, I like that comment section in its own way. Like, because um, the ones who regularly commented on mine were, they were pretty nice actually. But, um, I don't know. I mean, it seems, it seems well received. (laughs) I do get the occasional like very angry email. Um, but that's usually, I don't know. I I get some really weird emails, but it's, it's usually like a fringe thing. If it gets like, if it gets a lot of traffic, I start getting weird emails and that's when I know like, Oh, this has reached a different audience than I'm used to. I I don't know. I mean, I mean, I have my, my kind of, philosophy to a lot of like the bigger food problems is I'm really hesitant to put the blame on the consumer in our current system. Right. Like, because if you take something even that sounds like it's going to be more ethical and good from the beginning, like, like, like beyond meat, like that sounds like people think they're like, Oh good. It's vegetarian. I'm not hurting animals. Therefore it's better. But now you look at how it's being scaled up. Right. Like, hugely like what are the labor implications of that like what are the like how is that stuff being farmed who's farming it like you know it's it's really hard to find that information out so (sighs) consumer politics like uh, don't really go that far in like under capitalism so it's just I try to I try to stay away from that you know I think people can make all the best choices within their means it's also like again like if if someone's working jobs and like working two jobs and barely surviving like I'm not gonna I'm gonna I'm not gonna nitpick their food decisions like and like (laughs) say that they're not ethical and like the system is not only making it hard to make ethical decisions it's making it hard for them to make enough money to make ethical decisions um 
I don't know if that answers no, that, your original question. No, it, 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 it does. It does because I think, and it's interesting because I, you know, I see you kind of tackling this and being approachable to your audience in this and, and still, you know, teaching people how to eat well. And, and when you say, when I say well, I mean like in an enjoyable and pleasurable way. Um, right. And I think that that's so that's not present enough. Like the idea that you're not just writing for people who live in Brooklyn and work in media. I And I don't know if, right. if you feel this way. Like I know because, I mean, I grew up in New York, so I was always in New York, but because I'm from Long Island, I always had this like other perspective on things that, and like, I wasn't trying to be someone who was not from Long Island. So like, I, right. um, I always had this different perspective on things. And you know, you're living in Oregon. I don't know if you've ever lived in New York have, no, have you no. So like, I think it's a completely different perspective on how people eat and how people survive. <laughs> and so I don't like, what is your right. perspective on like the more, I guess I'm going to say mainstream food media, which makes me sound, I guess, like a right wing crazy person, but, um, <laughs> no, uh, no. but like, you know, like that, like media, like New York centric, like major urban center centric food media from being like recipe focused from being, um, at life hacker, which is not like a food publication per se. Like, how do you see yeah. everything that's kind of going on in food media and what's being published? Well, I do. I will say being at Lifehacker, I do feel very lucky because I have a focus and the focus yeah. is to make eating and cooking easier for people. Like, you know, it's Lifehacker. It's not like, so it keeps me from like spinning out into like weird, super niche, like sous vide projects and like things that take, because for one thing, I write two articles a day. So like, I don't have time to spend like, you know, weeks developing a recipe. Um so that there's that, like that kind of keeps me like very focused on service journalism. Um, and I do, I mean, I, I don't, I don't mind a bougie recipe, but I, and I don't mind like a super specific scientific recipe where like it's honed in to like be optimized or whatever. But I take issue with, with the idea that either one of those is like the best way to do something. I really don't like in food media where they're like, this is the best way to do it. And if you're not doing <laughs> it this way, then you're shit. Like, <laughs> or like, then you shouldn't even bother. Cause that's, that's so stupid. And it's so prohibitive and it's, and frankly, it's just like, it's classist. Um, I think with, I mean, there's so many quote unquote reckonings going on right now, but I, I mean, you can tell looking at the outcome of some of these reckonings that the people who own these companies, like the CEOs do not care about these reckonings. You know, they, right. they, they actually, they don't care about these issues. They will say they care. They will make little, little changes, but at the end of the day, like they don't care. And the, <laughs> I do think that like a really important part of both restaurants going forward and food media is like, we need to unionize more. Right. Yeah. Like, and I know the LA times is already unionized and um, they're still treating, Oh, I'm blanking on her name. I'm so embarrassed. Pre, uh, um, Patricia Escarcega. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're still, you know, treating her like shit, but like, yeah, those, those are things that like you can put salary minimums in contracts. Like we have in our contract, at least we have like, 
every role has a salary minimum, which kind of prevents huge discrepancies of two people doing the same job. But like, I think it's important to keep unionizing, keep building strong contracts, because that's the only way you can actually like fight CEOs and fight bosses and like collective action is the only, and, and like Twitter is kind of like a weird sort of collective action that can kind of work in that way. Cause like you get enough people piling on and you will see some shifts, but like for real systemic changes, like I think you, you have to like, you have to organize and you have to like contractually organize against these people. Right. And were you into union, into unions? (laughs) Were you like, were you, was labor, (laughs) was the significance of unionizing, was that, um, you know, when did that become significant to you? Um, the, the importance of Uh, of unionizing? That became significant to me, like when I joined a union, really, Mm because, you know, we, um, Gawker, RIP, was already unionized when I got the job at Lifehacker. So I just joined. And then, um, and right around that time, actually, I started dating my current partner who is in the painters union (laughs) (laughs) and introduced me to a bunch of other people who were in various unions. And like those two things really, I mean, I can immediately, joining the union, I could immediately see how much better it was to have a union and to not have a union, to have salary mm-hmm. minimums, to have healthcare, to have paid time off, to have severance. Those things are were, to me, at least unheard of in media. Um, right. And, and, you know, that was all like five years ago. And now a lot more, a lot more sites are unionized. So it's a lot more commonplace. But at the time, it was not common for like a media blogger job to have these built-in protections. Um, yeah. No, yeah. And I I came from bigger magazines that it was never even talked about. I never thought about it. I never knew mm-hmm. that it was something possible. I was like, well, I have a white-collar job, and so I right. don't get to complain about anything. <laughs> I never get right. to say anything. I don't have to care that I yeah. work to the bone, you know, because I sit at a computer and I don't, you know, I don't get the same rights as everybody else. I mean, I don't know where I got yeah. that idea, but, I mean, I, it seems pretty common. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's like petite bourgeois guilt kind of, right? right? Like, right. <laughs> like yeah. you're not, you're not working class. I mean, cause like you look at, you look at construction unions and sometimes mm-hmm. like I do get not frustrated, but like you look at construction unions and, and like people will die on those jobs, right? Like it's a different, the stakes are very different, but that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that like, even though it, it's, it's a, it's a quote unquote cushy job, like yeah. you still, you, no matter what your labor is, you deserve a fair wage for your labor. You deserve healthcare. You deserve time off. Like we're just like, America is so insane around like, <laughs> the issue of like er- earning your time off or like mm-hmm. earning your salary, like earning the right to just like live in a space that is in a complete dump. Like you, these aren't mm-hmm. things you have to earn. These are things that like everyone <laughs> deserves. Like yeah. everyone deserves it decent space to sleep in and some like some time off every once in a while like yeah but yeah I do I I do think it's interesting like it it, yeah because when actually when I first started dating Wyatt I was a freelancer and he was like oh have you ever thought of joining the freelancers unit and I was just like no why would (laughs) I why would I think to do that (laughs) right um and now you know I'm like a union thug (laughs) (laughs) 
I love it though because these are I can't I'm so excited that this is happening and that it's been happening and it's funny because I left yeah like my full-time magazine job like right before this kind of started and so I was always mm-hmm. like a little bit angry <laughs> like I haven't gotten the chance yeah. to really like do the union thing but um but I'm it's okay. it's just such a necessary uh thing that's happening and it's funny because I was I was writing a little bit about um, what is happening to Patricia and, you know, ideas of prestige and, and how they manifest, you know, in a material yeah. way for a lot of people. Well, for for people <laughs> who don't, I don't know, already have money, working in media is, is really difficult. And and so, you know, yeah. you count on, on accumulating prestige in order to even like make a living. Um, and that shouldn't be yeah. how it how it is. It's, it's yeah. Prestige. Um, but- prestige is fucking nonsense like any form of it whether it's like hipster cred prestige or like this kind of older um like new york media prestige like if i just read it came out in october but chris crowley wrote about um mission chinese right and just how you know there was rampant abuse at that place but it was such like it presented as such like an inclusive progressive and it it, just, it doesn't matter how these places right. present, whether it's like a media company, a restaurant, it does not matter how they present unless you have like, you know, a, a um, what's the word? Uh, unions are workers defense organizations. Right. If you don't have some sort of workers defense organization, workers will be exploited. Like yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. just, that's what happens under capitalism. Even if, yeah. even the bosses with the best intentions, like eventually things go bad because of capitalism. <laughs> yes. It's so hard to just not finish every piece, which is, it's bad. I know. And <laughs> I, I feel like, I feel like I, I overly simplify it, but it really is so hard to make any real changes in the current system. Yeah. No, it's real. It's real. And for you is, is cooking a, a political act? Cooking is something that pretty much everybody has to do outside of politics. I think right. it can be political. I don't think it's inherent. I mean, like, again, it's, it's hard to, div- it's not done in a vacuum. So everything we do has little political like consequences, but it, it shouldn't be, it should just right. be the act of keeping yourself alive, you right. know, um, <laughs> but even staying alive, even staying alive can feel political sometimes. For sure. Yeah. Well, but yeah, thank you. I just Oh, you're welcome. Sorry. Oh, no, no. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm sorry. I think we have a little delay you're that welcome. is like yeah, causing me to make noises that I shouldn't be making. Um, but yeah, no. Thank you so much for coming on and and I love everything that you do. I think it's so such a breath of fresh air in in food. Media. I love everything <laughs> you do. I feel like your work is so much more serious than mine. Well, we don't like, need everyone to be serious so- all the time. <laughs> that's true you're, you're so thoughtful and I just yeah I love the work you do so thank you so much for having me no thank you thank you